0: I'm going to go ahead and look into the book of Nahum, chapter 1, and we're going to talk this morning about the wrath of God. This is not necessarily the most popular topic to speak about. In fact, this is one of the joys of preaching through books of scripture, we have to deal head-on with everything that we come across and address it, hopefully with accuracy and with uh, faithfulness. And one of those uh, issues that we come to is God's wrath, His anger. We like to talk about the love of God. We like to talk about His mercy. And his tenderness and his kindness and all all of these things could be rightly said about God. But the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, is uh is rightly said to be a God of wrath. Now there are Many people in the world who are asking the question, in fact, I ran into one last night who said that she has a relative who said that if there's a God, why is there so much evil in the world? And he has walked away from the faith because he has noticed that there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of evil in the world and so he said well if god exists and perhaps you have run into somebody like this they have said if god exists then um then why is there so much pain why is there so much hurt i can barely watch the news anymore it's so depressing you turn it on and it's just one tragedy after another one story of evil after another, and people are asking themselves, they're saying, Where is God in all the midst of this? Where is He? Where is God? God's appropriate response, according to the scripture, is wrath. God looks at the world and he sees all of the evil and he sees all of the sin that is taking place in the world. His righteous response His godly as he is God response is a response of indignation, a response of wrath and a response of anger. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. That's what the Bible says. Uh, The Bible pictures a God, not only a God of love and tenderness, which he is, but also a God of justice and a God of wrath. There are so many people today that simply do not want to hear about God. We are at the point now where if Christians are going to be faithful, where if Christians are going to be true to the text of Scripture and to their own calling as Christians, there comes a point in a society where all the arguing has to end, and Christians need to simply stand up and say, judgment is here, and judgment is coming. The wrath of God is coming. We're not going to sit here and debate anymore. We're not going to sit here and argue. Oh, yes, there is room for apologetics. There is room for reason. There are times we still need to sit down and talk with people one-on-one and explain the gospel to them, and we need to do that winsomely and gently. But if there was ever a time in our country where it was for people, for Christians who knew God, To simply and boldly say, look, because of our sin, because of our forsaking the Lord, we deserve his just condemnation. And we deserve as a result of our sin, his everlasting damnation. It is time for us to repent and to turn to the Lord. It's time for us to to come back to him. So what we are trying to do is we are trying to appease people and get people into the church through messages that will hopefully appeal to them, that they'll want to listen to, but oftentimes it's not dealing with the heart issue. It's not dealing with the sin issue. Think about Noah in his day. One could hardly say that Noah was seeker-sensitive. His message was one that judgment is upon us and judgment is coming. You look at all of the prophets throughout the whole Old Testament. They were not very popular guys. The message was repent for judgment is at hand. You look at the message of Jesus Christ coming as he is, as we see him in the Gospels in the New Testament. And he says things like this, repent or you too will likewise perish. Over and over again, we see a message of judgment. But a sign that judgment is upon us is when nobody cares When somebody is preaching or Christians are being faithful in their calling and they are constantly talking about these things, and yet oftentimes it's falling on deaf ears, that is an indicator that the judgment of God has already started to fall. When people yawn and are uninterested and we sit there and we think, how can we reach people? How can we tell people, listen, There are many, many people here in this valley. There are many people in the United States of America that have heard the gospel. Sure, there are many that have never heard even in the United States. That is absolutely true. But there are many who have heard, millions who have heard, and have said simply, no thanks. No thank you. I appreciate... The message, in some sense, I understand that you're trying to tell me the Bible and the Bible verses. But I'm really not interested. And so I'm not coming to church and I really am not interested in the Lord. Listen, that's what's going on all around us. Even as we are. Speaking. So many ask if God exists, why is there so much? evil God's rightful and righteous response to evil is wrath and yet man does not want a God of wrath so we have a real dilemma where's God because of all this evil God's righteous response is anger toward sin righteous wrath toward sin but man does not want to hear anything about God's righteous indignation. And the truth is, if God dealt with our evil and he wiped out evil, God would have to destroy every person. It's very easy to talk about the evil people over there, the bad people that exist in that country or in that part of the neighborhood, those people that are in jail, all of those people that do evil things. And so we ask ourselves, where's God? If God were here, he would take care of all of this evil. And yet if God were to come in and deal with evil swiftly and right away and immediately, God would have to wipe off the face of the earth, every person that exists, because every person at the core of their being is evil. In fact, that's what the scripture says, and that's what God almost did. In Genesis chapter 6, if you flip back there to Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them behold i will destroy them with the earth so god's looking around and he is looking and he finds no righteous people the only people that he saves eight people are people who are righteous through faith they are not righteous in and of themselves, it was simply the mercy of God that he even spared them. Because if God wanted to, because of his righteous wrath, if God was going to deal with sin, and he was going to deal with every person's sin, he would have to wipe out every person without exception. At this point, 7 billion people. He couldn't say, I'm going to simply wipe out the bad people and leave the good people. I'm going to wipe out all of the evil people and destroy people who do wicked things. And yet I'm going to save all of the good people. The problem is there is no line like that in scripture. There are no good people versus bad people. The scripture is clear, all are born into sin, all are evil. And if God was going to deal with our evil in such fashion, he would have to wipe out the entire population. He almost wiped out all of Israel. So we see him almost wiping out the whole world here in Genesis. But there are a number of times where God is speaking with Moses And Israel has continually sinned his chosen people, the people that he has taken for his own possession. And he has said to Moses, Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out. So not only does he say, I'm going to wipe out the entire human race, except for eight people, but I'm also going to wipe out the nation of Israel. Look with me at Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Verse 10, Exodus chapter 32, verse 10. God is dealing with this situation with the golden calf. They had, the Israelites had made, had erected this this golden calf, had begun to serve an idol. And so God says, I'm going to take care of these people. The Lord, verse nine, and the Lord said to Moses, chapter 32 of Exodus, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God says, I'm going to save you, Moses. I'm going to start over with you just like He did with no, I'm going to start over with you but I'm going to uh, destroy all of Israel in my wrath. The truth is, here's what we want. We want evil with no harm, no consequences, and we want a God that consents to evil. So man in his wickedness says, I'm going to marry who I'm going to marry. I don't care if it's another man, I'm going, I'm going to marry him. Or a woman says, I am going to in direct opposition to God. I'm going to marry whoever I want. The Lord considers this evil. But mankind has said, we want to do evil God, but we don't want any consequences. Lord, we want to acknowledge that somehow you're out there. We believe in some kind of deity. But God, we want you to consent to our evil. We want you to celebrate it with us. We not only want you to kind of overlook it, but we want you to come along and look at our evil and say, way to go. That is really good. We have all sorts of problems in our nation because we don't even know what evil is anymore. We have called evil good, and we have called good evil. And so God is saying, look, I'm going to bring judgment. The just wrath of God is coming against sin. He almost wipes out the entire population in Genesis. He almost wipes out all of Israel in Exodus, and yet people are still stiff-necked saying, no, no. That's not not what we're going to do. We're not going to follow you, Lord. We are not going to bow the knee. And now he is going to give a picture of his wrath when he is coming against Assyria. Assyria had oppressed Israel. Assyria had come against Israel in many different ways and ways. They were a brutal people. We have shared before, but Assyria was such a brutal empire that they enjoyed ripping open pre- pregnant women, killing them that way. They enjoyed putting people's heads down in ruts and riding chariots over their heads and popping their heads, as it were, like pimples. This was this was the joy that Assyria got out of brutalizing people. And finally, they had come to a place where they had conquered the northern kingdom. In 722 BC, they had uh, conquered Israel. And now they were oppressing Judah. And God is watching all of this. And this is an example of God's wrath. God is watching Assyria... As they brutalize the people of God, they have brutalized Israel. And now they are oppressing Judah. And God is going to use Nahum to come and say to Assyria, enough is enough. God's wrath is resting on you and is coming against you. This is all happening around 650 B.C. Nahum is prophesying. During the time that Manasseh was the king of Judah, in fact, we see Manasseh in Second Chronicles. If you flip over there to Second Chronicles chapter 33, Second Chronicles chapter 33, Second Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 33, verse 10. So God is dealing with his people. He is looking at Israel. They have been conquered. Assyria is now still in power. They have not taken over Judah, but they are are oppressing them on a regular basis, coming against them. The kings in Judah are having to pay tribute to the kings of Assyria. So this is happening between 7.22, Nahum is preaching around 6.50. And in 5.86, later on, Judah is going to be conquered, but they are going to be conquered by Babylon. At this point, Assyria is still in power. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh. Manasseh was a wicked king of Judah. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria. So there it is, the king of Assyria. Manasseh is the king of Judah. And God is using Assyria, but Assyria is brutal in their punishment of Israel. And now they are brutal in their treating and dealing with Judah. And so this king of Assyria captures, verse 11, Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. At this point, Babylon had been conquered by Assyria. They were under Assyria's rule. And so this king of Assyria, Ashur takes the king Manasseh and leads him away to Babylon. Verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So Assyria at this point is still in power. They're in power over Judah at this point, although Judah has not been fully conquered. Assyria is going to end up falling. They will fall eventually in 612 B.C. to Babylon. But at this point, they're still in power. And God comes through predictive prophecy to Nahum. And he says, I want you to prophesy about what is going to happen to this nation, to this empire called Assyria and to the fact that they have been mistreating the people of Jerusalem, and he's saying, I'm going to come in wrath. And so that's where we pick up. If you go back to Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. If you remember, Jonah had preached there over 100 years before. And there had been a a great revival. Jonah didn't want to preach. God had sent him to preach a message of repentance. He said destruction was coming. Justice was going to be served. And Jonah thought, I'm not going to uh, go there and preach because, God, I know that you're a compassionate God. And if I go and preach there, they might repent. And this is like going to preach to the Nazis God, I can't stand them. This is like somebody being called to Iran or North Korea. You think about people that mistreat people horribly or our stomach being turned when a young man, boy, is sent home from North Korea in a comatose state. And our hearts say, how unjust, how unfair. And God is calling Jonah, he's saying, listen, I want you to go to North Korea and I want you to preach to them. And I want you to preach a message of repentance. Jonah is thinking, there's no way I'm going to preach that to them. So he runs away. And eventually he goes. And because the Lord is behind his message and there's an anointing, and there's a power on his message. People all over the city begin to repent and they begin to get things right with the Lord. There's a massive revival in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. But things wouldn't stay that way. And they would return, their descendants would return to their brutal ways and to their ways of oppression. And so now Nahum comes along with probably a message that Jonah would have liked to have preached, that God wouldn't let him preach. But Nahum comes along and says, here is the message of judgment. So this is the oracle against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, who is the prophet, his name, by the way, means comforter. We don't know a lot about him, barely anything. And we really don't know anything about this town of Elkosh. There have been guesses as to where this town is, and people have guessed different parts of the Mideast. We simply don't know. Some scholars have guessed that he was from Galilee. We, we simply don't know. But we know this, that he received this, this message as a vision from God. Now notice how God presents himself and what he tells Nahum and what he tells Nahum concerning Assyria. So he's coming to Nahum and he's saying, this prophecy that I'm giving you, it's not about Judah. You are not preaching here primarily to Judah. Assyria is on the scene and I am preaching to Assyria. We're not preaching here to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already been uh, taken care of and is off the stage at this point. So this prophecy is concerning Assyria, and in particular here in verse 1, the capital of Assyria, that is Nineveh. And this is how God presents himself in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous. Well, let's stop right there. The Lord's a jealous God. So when we think about God, we often think about his love and his comfort and all these different things. But when we think about God, does jealousy come to our mind? The fact that the Lord is protective over his people, that he loves his people, and he wants them to know him as the only true God, the God that we just sang about earlier, the God called Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the only true God. For God to allow any other type of worship or, or any other type of religion would be idolatry. I remember Oprah Winfrey at one point saying that she was in church and she was listening to the preacher talk and she said that he got to the point where he said our God is a jealous God. And she said that immediately turned her off to hear of God being talked about as a jealous God. Well, we know that God is not a petty boyfriend or a petty girlfriend. It's not that kind of jealousy. It's a righteous, holy, perfect, wholesome jealousy. But it is a jealousy. And God is protective over his people and his his heart grieves when he sees his people begin to go astray, or when he sees his people being oppressed by those who don't know him. Listen, the Lord sees us when we are going through things in our life. We're crying out to the Lord. Perhaps you're in a situation right now. You're crying out to the Lord, and you're saying, this is unfair. Lord, I'm, I'm coming to you, and there's the oppression of your enemies, and you're saying to yourself, maybe it's at work. Maybe it's a person you know, maybe it's family, maybe it's a friend. And you're going, the the way I am being treated here is unfair. There's oppression going on here. Lord, this isn't right. Think of our brothers and sisters all around the world who are going through way worse circumstances than us. And they're crying out to the Lord and they're saying, Lord, this isn't just, this isn't right. And God doesn't turn a deaf ear to that and say, well, I, I don't care about justice. I'm not jealous over you. I, I don't care about your protection. You're fine just the way you are. No, listen, God cares. He cares when people are oppressing his people. He loves his people. He's concerned about the things that his people are going through. And this is what he is telling Naam. I'm jealous over Judah. I'm protective over them. I understand what Assyria is doing to My people, I I get it. I'm there. I'm watching. There's a compassion here. So he says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. That is, he will return harm. He will pay back those who hurt his people. Now, vengeance is not up to us. So the Lord is very clear. He says, don't you pay somebody back? And there are times in our lives where we say, this person hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them. They've punched me. I'm going to punch them back twice as hard. We we hear that message all the time. We hear it in power. People saying, they hurt me. I'm going to hurt them back. God comes along and says, no, 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 no. Vengeance isn't yours. But he does say this in Romans chapter 12. He says, vengeance is mine. Our God is a vengeful God. And Paul there is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, where he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Then he goes on to say this, I will repay. So the Lord is up in heaven. He's not saying, well, I'm just indifferent to the things that are going on. I'm not jealous over my people. I don't want to protect my people. And I'm not going to avenge the wrong. Can you imagine if God never avenged the wrong? Can you imagine if evil deeds never got punished? People who do awful, awful things go into eternity and never get punished. God just simply says, Well, I understand, Hitler. There's six million Jews that went down, but that's okay. Wink, wink. You know, let bygones be bygones. How about him letting our evil go? Will he let all of the things that we have done wrong? It's so easy, as we have already said, to point out oh, this person did this, or this group of people have done all of these wrongs. How are we going to take care of it? And God says, listen, here's how we're going to take care of it. I'm a God of vengeance. In fact, that's what it says here in the text. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Payday is coming. It's going to be an awful thing when we talk about the judgment of God. It was going to be an awful thing when judgment finally fell on Assyria in 612 and Babylon came in and wiped them out. It was a serious thing when judgment fell on Israel in 70 AD and the temple is destroyed. It's a serious thing. It's a serious thing when you look at nation after nation in history and the judgment of God It is an awesome thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So God says here, this is how I describe myself. I am avenging and wrathful, full of wrath. But then interestingly, he says in verse 3, Nahum says, The Lord is slow to anger. So when we talk about the anger of the Lord, it's not like man's unrighteous anger that just goes with the whims of emotion. But the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So he's slow to anger. Why, Why is the Lord slow to anger? Why doesn't he just get angry quickly? Deal with sin instantly? He could, but he doesn't. Go with me to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three verse nine. So God could come and punish sin like that, but he doesn't. But it says this in 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance Maybe the Lord in the midst of all this talk about vengeance and wrath is actually gracious in that he waits. He said, I will never destroy the world again with a flood, and he has not. He did not destroy Israel, and he has not destroyed us instantly. He could have, but he didn't. Why doesn't he do that? He's waiting, and he's calling. And he's saying the time is short, but the time is now. There's still time for change. There's still time for repentance. There is still time to turn to me. And so instead of just coming in six months or even six years, the Lord takes year after year, patient work after patient work. His kindness is in all of his works and in all of his deeds. He is slow to anger and he's great in power but he's very clear that there is nothing that can stand against him when he does come in wrath. So he says, I'm going to come in wrath. I'm going to come in judgment. I'm a God of wrath. I am a God of vengeance. But there is a time for repentance. There is a time for turning. But when my vengeance comes, when my wrath comes, nothing is going to be able to stand in my way. Have you ever thought about people that you just say to yourself, they are just so hard, so hard. And perhaps you have uh, prayed for them and you think to yourself, is there anything? I know God is powerful enough. I know that he could come. I know that he could soften their heart. But it just seems like the wicked get away with so much. And they just continue to do it year after year, this This haughty look on life, they just continue to move through life. They spurn God, they're not interested in the things of God, and it doesn't go for just a little bit of time, but it's day after day. They just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And perhaps you've even asked yourself, where is God in all of this? Is God really going to do anything? Is he going to do anything? Well, Nahum here answers the question that nothing can stand. In the face of God, go with me down to verse 6 of chapter 1. Who can stand, it says here, before his indignation? Nobody can stand before his wrath. Who can endure the heat of his anger? Nobody can stand in the face of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The hardest things are broken up before the Lord. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Again, there's mercy even in the midst of judgment. Judgment is coming, but wrath is reserved for God's enemies. Wrath never rests or falls on those who are his. Verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. So he's saying this, wrath is coming, and when wrath comes, there is nothing that is going to be able to stand before his judgment, not the hardest person, not the hardest military, not the hardest nation. can stand before his power and stand before his might. Oh, that the Lord would give us more time. We need time. Listen we are we are seeing we are seeing this in our own day. this is about Assyria, but we are seeing this happen with our nation. where God is saying judgment is coming, judgment is coming, people are not paying attention, but the Lord is saying those who will take refuge in him, those who will bow the knee can find refuge in him, a stronghold in him, a strong tower in him. it's not it's not too late. And yet there is this comfort. Lord, we don't delight in payback. But we thank you, Lord, that you are a God of justice. We thank you that in the end, you are going to right all of the wrongs. Lord, you're going to take care of the things in this life that go on forever, seemingly forever, that go on day after day. Lord, you are going to come and you are going to take care care of these things there is comfort in his justice you skip down to verse 15 last last verse of chapter 1 so this message of justice in context is a message of good news it is good news that the Lord is just that's the context of what is going on here verse 15 behold upon the mountains the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What is he talking about? He's talking about Assyria. He's saying, here's the good news. The good news is Assyria is going to be cut off. Judgment is coming. This is the comfort for you. There is going to be relief. Now, in thinking about this, there's a verse in the New Testament. We close with this. From 2 Thessalonians, it sounds a lot like this. If you go over to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So God has promised his people Israel judgment is coming. This is actually a message of comfort for them. And in the same way, he gives us a message of comfort in the context of judgment in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. Notice what it says here in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So indeed, God considers it just, here it is, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God says, I'm going to pay them back, those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting, here it is, vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. What's the comfort here? The comfort, and interestingly, Nam's name is Comforter. The comfort is that the Lord is going to afflict those who have afflicted you when he comes in judgment. Wow, what a message. So the Lord comes and he says, Church, hang on. He says to the people of God, hang on. There is justice. There is vengeance that is going to happen. But it might not happen right now, but it is going to happen when the Lord comes back. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, we uh, thank you for uh, this word of, of judgment and wrath. Lord, you are a God of justice. And while you do not delight in the death of the wicked, God, we bow our knees before you as a God of vengeance, as a God of jealousy, as a God of wrath. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of what we see here, God, we would be running to you and that we would recognize, Lord, that your judgment doesn't come because you're some capricious God, but it comes because of our own sin and defiance against you. Lord, I pray that we would meditate on these things, that we would take the whole counsel of God and we would be sober-minded, thinking about the fact that you are a God who comes to deal with sin. Lord, we worship your almighty name, Yahweh, the Lord God who still exists, who is the self-existent one, the eternal one. From before all time and now and forevermore, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.